Hello, and welcome back to Music for PhDs. This podcast is sponsored by Encoda, the home of digital sheet music. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday and are enjoying a great start to the new year. We're kicking off 2020 with Kristen Flores, whose nature-inspired piece, Waves, was her thesis dissertation. Kristen and I chat about music, motherhood, and the struggles of teaching your own kids the violin. Dr. Kate drops some knowledge on teaching and learning music and how babies can identify individual monkey calls, but adults cannot. When we chatted in sort of our pre-chat, you mentioned that you have young kids and are you... Do they play instruments? Are they in music lessons? Are you teaching them? Yeah. So I I teach violin lessons myself. And um, of course, my three kids are also in the program. (laughs) (laughs) So my oldest is uh, almost 10 and my youngest is almost five. So all, all three of them play the violin. I teach Suzuki violin, which means I have group lessons every week as well as the private lesson. Hmm. So they're all, all three of my kids are in those group classes and they're the characters of the class. They're the ones that don't listen to the teacher, of course. And of course. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, they all, they all play. And actually my oldest is always making up goofy songs. And so I'm like, Oh wow. He's, he, he's got that composer bug. <laughs> it's a, it's a struggle to teach your kids an instrument. It'd be much easier for me to send them to someone else because you know, when you, when you have another teacher, you they can't really say, no, I don't want to play. You know, they just have to sort of listen yeah. and be good kids. But when it's the parent teaching, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm met with a lot of struggle. But I think it's paying off. Um, they're doing well. I hope that, you know, they become musicians or enjoy music. Not to necessarily make a career of it, but to just en- get enjoyment from it. For sure. It sounds like a very musical household. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so how did you get started in music? Um, I started piano lessons at a young age. I was always begging my mom if I could start piano. I remember I was quite young, like maybe four years old or so. And then when I was sort of around grade two, there was sort of a family friend that started teaching violin. And my mom was like, oh, how about violin? Her dad played a little bit of violin and her uncle um, was a bit of a luthier. He sort of built and repaired violins. So there's a little bit of history in the family for violin. So I started violin and loved it, I guess. And then when I was in university at Augustana and Camrose, I I took piano lessons again and and kind of, I love the piano. The piano is an awesome instrument. Um, And it's the first instrument I really started to write music on. And was that something you did when you were a kid kind of messing around with it or did that come much later? You know what? My first composition was when I was quite young. Um, for the piano and one of my piano teachers wrote it out for me and I I still have a copy of it. The piece Waves was my dissertation piece and it's a 19 minute long piece. It's probably the piece I spent the most amount of time on of my entire compositional career so it's, it's quite important to me. Do you want to tell me about the background of it? 
Yeah, so often when I write music, I write about nature. I have a lot of pieces, one of them called Northern Lights, another one by the lake, into the fog, in the mountains. So some of my pieces have actually been performed outside. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so just outside Canmore, actually, there's a a place called Goat Pond, and two of my pieces have been written for that um, venue. That kind of outdoor arena. That's amazing. Yeah, and perform there. So This does explain why you don't have a ton of recordings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I, I just really love thinking about certain beauties of the world when I write music. I guess initially I was thinking I spent a lot of time on a very windy beach because my dad and my brother love to windsurf. So we were always watching them on a super windy day with lots of white caps on the lake. But I just, I also just love the ocean and you can just stare out at the ocean for, you know, miles. And um, I sort of use the idea of waves throughout the entire composition where I started with a super high pitch and sort of went in the middle of the composition to a really low, low frequencies and then by the end of the piece, sort of going way back up as high as possible, just sort of to a maybe like a tsunami or something, just this huge wave way up in the sky. So the whole the whole form of the piece is sort of like a wave with a pitch shape. And then within each movement, I try and do tons of different wave-like melodic lines and, and um, yeah. So with waves, do you have a specific image in mind or a location? No, I just sort of thought of waves in general, I guess. It's not sort of a specific um, spot. I'm thinking they're a a specific place or anything I used to go to. It's just sort of the idea of waves, either in a lake or an ocean. And the waves being either really small waves, and I sort of show that with a really small range in the instruments, kind of like a ripple, I guess. And then I can also show sort of a bigger wave, maybe seen in an ocean with sort of a a larger frequency wave in the piano and the strings. This is a pretty open-ended question, but what do you hope people take away from this piece? Do you have a goal in mind for someone listening? You know, I, I love melodies and I really want people to sort of remember the melodic lines, I guess, from the piece. I really want them to come away from the piece whistling it or singing it in the shower. I think one of my biggest focuses when I'm writing a a work is the melody. I want every single movement to have some sort of melody. And so I guess I just want it to be memorable. I want it to be something that they can, tangible for them, that they can sort of sing when when they finish listening to the piece. Kristen's piece is about 25 minutes long, which is pretty lengthy for me, and it made this painting challenging. But before we get into that, I just want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Encoda, the Spotify of sheet music. 
and Coda is a subscription app that lets you practice, play, and perform your sheet music. They have literally thousands of titles and millions of pages, all from licensed publisher catalogs. You can download a free trial on the App Store today. That's N-K-O-D-A. So all of the paintings that I've done for this podcast series have been the same size. And that means I have the same amount of real estate, whether the music goes for eight minutes or for 30. For Kristen's piece, I knew I would have to pace myself and go slowly, or I would really overwork the paper. So instead of big grand gestures like waves, I ended up moving much more slowly. I got an impression of stems growing or petals unfurling. So this piece has a really floral vibe to me. The finished piece puts me in mind of foliage or a wild blue rose garden. You can check out the finished painting on my website at sunitalegallo.com. I know it's not super easy to spell, but there is a link in the podcast show notes. Now back to Kristen. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the outdoor concerts that you had written for? What what was different about writing music when you knew it was going to be performed in that kind of outdoor setting? Yeah, so the first um, the first piece I wrote was um, called In the Mountains for Solo Cello. And you just know that it's going to be outside. I, I knew it wouldn't be a super long composition. I can't remember how long. I think that's only a five-minute piece. Because it's going to be very hard to perform outside. You're going to have to use all kinds of clips to make sure the music doesn't blow away. and A lot of physical constraints. Yeah. I don't know. I just I really just sort of pictured that, that pond when I was writing and um, this sort of mountains all around because it's just outside Canmore there and you just sort of picture that scenery and um, and then the performance just ends up sounding nicer too because the beauty of, of the landscape just makes the music sound even more beautiful so I just those performances sort of stand out to me. I love it I love the idea of place specific music I feel like living in Airdrie, you could write some very strong wind or storm-inspired <laughs> pieces. Definitely, <laughs> yes. And uh, and so what's kind of next for you in, in terms of music? You know what, I definitely, you know, my kids are starting to get a bit older. Um, it's, it's really hard to write music when you have young kids, especially when they're babies or mm-hmm. when you're pregnant, you know, when you're pregnant and you feel nauseous the whole time. <laughs> it's really hard to be inspired by, you know, sometimes you just are so tired. But now, you know, my kids are growing up. My youngest is in kindergarten this year. So I feel like I'm going to start to write, have a lot more time to write. So my next, I guess my next step is to look for an ensemble that would like a piece written for them, I guess. I Cool. So I think we'll just do a quick lightning round. It's just for fun. All right. Coffee or tea? Um, tea. Black tea, green tea, herbal tea? Any kind of tea. Yeah. Tea is great. You must have a British background. <laughs> <laughs> Norwegian, actually. <laughs> ah, there you go. All right. Well, then gin or vodka? Uh, tequila. <laughs> that's not Norwegian at all okay <laughs> uh, yeah my husband grew up in Mexico so we spent a lot of time in Mexico that sounds awesome actually if you weren't in music what do you think you would be doing I don't know I really like rocks 
What's a book you're currently reading? Nicholas Sparks. uh, I think it's called Every Breath. It's kind of like The Notebook. I feel like most Nicholas Sparks books are kind of like The Notebook. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What's the best vacation you ever took? I don't know. All vacations seem to be super fun. But I have some pretty memorable vacations in Mexico, too. Uh, We went to a place called Guanajuato. And it's sort of like all these underground tunnels, and you're trying to make your way. The town is kind of like a maze in the mountains. It's all underground. And then all of a sudden, you come out and the town is there and then you go back in and it's just a very magical place. That's Um, really cool. That was maybe one of the most magical places I visited. What's the next country you'll go visit? You know what? We we really want to go to Europe. I went to Europe. Well, I I lived in Greece just for a year when I was really young. Um, And then I, I went to Europe briefly in high school my husband hasn't been, and he's always wanted to, to go to Europe. So I think I think that's our next destination. Um, do you have a guilty pleasure? Um, I really like Ichiban. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know it's not what I it's expected. Like super unhealthy. <laughs> it's like eating wax, but yeah. it's delicious. It's delicious. <laughs> So, Dr. Kate, you're also a Suzuki teacher, but I don't think I really know what that means. That's okay. I think lots of people, when they think of Suzuki, either think of motorcycles or saving the environment. But Suzuki music learning is a method of starting children at a really young age and teaching them with strategies that take advantage of how little kids learn. Things like repetition, imitation, exposure and generally creating an environment where children can soak up information from their surroundings. So Suzuki kids take lessons one-on-one with a teacher, but they also learn in small groups of people who are at about the same age and stage as they are, and that's really motivating for kids. This also means that you practice every day, but you listen to music every day too. The idea is to be analogous to how you learn other skills like talking and walking that are always in your environment as you're growing up. Learning music with the Suzuki method takes a lot of support from a parent to provide the environment for young kids because kids can't do this themselves. And it also takes a teacher with pretty specialized training because it's not the same way that you teach music or anything else to older kids or to adults. Kind of like how as a baby, you're listening whether it's directed at you or not. Like your parents are listening to the radio and you happen to be in the room, so you're listening too. Exactly. There's always stuff going on around you. And infants are learning by taking in all of that information and gradually figuring out what patterns happen the most often and what information is meaningful to the humans around them, like their parents. So there's even evidence that this soaking in process starts happening before babies are born. So how would that be possible? Well, by the third trimester, your auditory system is developed enough that you can actually start to hear. Now, hearing in utero is kind of like being with your head underwater in a swimming pool. Scientists call it low-pass filtered sound, so it's muffled and you don't get all the details. Last episode, though, we talked about how speech is musical, so it has timing information and pitch information. Speech 
goes up and down, fast and slow, and there's rhythm to the emphases and the pauses that you put into your words. You don't get fine-grained details when you're hearing in utero, but you get enough of that pitch and rhythm information to pick out underlying patterns of words or stories from the hum of background noise like heartbeats and other sounds. Different languages have different patterns and rhythms to them, and research has shown that newborn babies can recognize the rhythm of the language their mother spoke while they were in utero, say English, compared to a language that has different rhythmic patterns they weren't exposed to, like French. So if that's how you learn a language, like English, is that also how you learn musical structures? In episode two, we talked about Western cultures using major and minor keys, but other cultures having other structures, like the paylog example. Exactly. Infants are doing that kind of culture-specific learning throughout the first year after they're born. It's part of a process called perceptual specialization. I mentioned a minute ago that infants learn by trying to detect patterns, and then they figure out what information in those patterns is important to the people around them. At first, they're taking in everything. Languages, music, faces, voices, even species. But that's not a good long-term strategy. It's too much information. Speech and language have patterns. Music has patterns. Even voices have patterns. So... In the first few months after you're born, your perceptual system is sensitive to all kinds of information, but by your first birthday, you figure out what patterns are important, and then you start to ignore all the details that don't matter. Um, wait, what do you mean by specializing for different species? <laughs> right. Most people would tell you that it's not too hard to tell apart the voices of two different human people even if the voices are pretty similar. So your listeners can probably tell apart your voice and my voice in this interview, even without seeing us, and even though we're both women and we're both speaking English. That sounds like timbre, episode number five. <laughs> so infants can tell apart two women's voices also. If you play them an example like this that uses the same word over and over, they're pretty good at noticing which one is spoken by a different person. Balloon. 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 Balloon? So one of those voices was a different person? Right. Person A speaks three times, and person B only speaks one time. Babies can pick person B out pretty well, just like most humans can. Listen again. Balloon. 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 Balloon? Oh, okay. The third balloon was a different speaker. That's right. So the really interesting part is that young infants can also do this kind of task with voices from other species. Rhesus macaques are a type of monkey that communicate with each other using vocal cues and sounds. Researchers know that rhesus monkeys can tell each other apart, but adult humans can't tell them apart. Infants can. Listen to this example. So in that example, you're hearing monkey A, A, B, and then A again. 
Yeah, I can't tell them apart at all. That all sounds exactly the same to me. Yeah, me too. But my colleagues assure me that number three is a different animal. And young babies notice that switch about as well as they notice the human switch. By the time they turn one, though, they've started paying less attention to monkeys, and they respond more like you and me. A huge thank you to Kristen, Dr. Kate, and our special guests, the Rhesus Monkeys. I hope you enjoyed listening and learning as much as I did. So as we mentioned in the interview, Kristen doesn't have a ton of recordings available online, but you can listen to some of her music on the CMC website. That's the Canadian Music Center. It's free to listen. Uh, you just need to register and links are in the show notes. Our next episode of Music for PhDs is also our final episode for this season, and we have a very special guest. Alexina Louie has made just so much music. She was recently awarded the 2019 Molson Prize. We chat about her piece, Music for Heaven and Earth, and Dr. Kate is back to talk about music in space. I also have an exciting announcement for an upcoming art show, which will feature all of the artwork from this podcast season. So mark your calendars for February 28th, and I will have more details coming up. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.